The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. Yup, yup, yup. So Josh, you finish, you finish freaking uh, ARS, you head out to your team. How was your first, you said your first deployment was a Mew. How was that? A lot of training, I'm well, sure. It was, yeah. Uh, so we flew ahead of the Mew to Hawaii, did training there. Then we flew ahead yep. of the Mew to um, Australia. We trained with Norforce guys. That was that was a lot of fun. You know, went out in the mangroves and looked at looked for alligators and shit. <laughs> it was a blast. What was interesting though was so we were in Darwin, Australia, the north side of Australia, and. It was nine o'clock at night and we're all getting hammered at the pubs and <laughs> it was September 11th of 2001. Oh shit. Oh shit. And so, and so short patrol starts fucking coming and clearing out the pubs, get back to the ship, get back to the ship. And so I had just bought a pitcher. So I was running down the road back to the ship, carrying this pitcher <laughs> with me, you know, drinking this pitcher. I'm not wasting this. Yeah, and the taxi di- cab drivers were pulling up and just like, Americans, get in, get in. We're taking you to ship. And we're like, what the fuck is going on here? Wow. So we get in, and the cab drivers are like, yeah, w- one of your uh, buildings in New York fell down. And we're like, or got bombed or something. And we're like, what? <laughs> and we finally make it back to ship. And you could tell something serious had fucking happened because they had the 50 cal machine gun nest sitting out in front of the of the where you get on back on the boat and everything and they weren't just doing that you come up and you know hey you know get back on ship it was a lot more um rigid than that we're all hammered we get back on the ship to watch the second tower fall on on tv in our birthing and we immediately set sail for pakistan so we stopped in god damn yeah the next day, we start doing debriefs on Al Qaeda, on Osama bin Laden, on everything that had happened. Uh, we make a stop in Indonesia to do a resupply and some stuff there. Head on to Pakistan. We get off the coast of Pakistan, and we see the first Tomahawk missiles shoot off. So it was at night. So we all go out on the flight deck of the USS Dubuque. And it was on another ship, but they fired the tomahawks, the first tomahawks that we see go in country. We watched those get, get shot off. Live. Then we, the, the recon guys, we were originally going to do a, there were a couple things that we were going to do. Two missions we were prepping for. One was a beach landing in Pakistan. So we were going to do a hydrographic survey mm-hmm. of where the landing craft were going to come in. And then number two is we were going to do the um, extraction of the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan. They ended up nixing the Pakistan Embassy extract. So we went ahead and just went on shore there in Pakistan. 
and then took choppers into further deep into Pakistan. And we set up shop in a place called Jacobabad. And then from there, um, you know, the D boys would come in on the, all the blackbirds and, and do night raids. Um, we were doing overwatch of, you know, like the airfield cause it was an old, uh, they had built it as like an airfield cause I guess the U S government was going to give them a bunch of F somethings, F 15s or whatever. Uh, but never gave them to them. So there's all these hangar bays and stuff. And, and we were camped out in one and we had set up, we were overwatch and had set up a sniper pause with the Barrett, the, with the 50 cal. So we were all manning the Barrett up on the top of this like dome chamber. The, the squeal team that was with us, um, they were in the main building. And at nighttime we would take the IR illuminators and we would play lightsabers <laughs> with each other, like in the sky, you know, <laughs> them from their pods and us from ours. What the fuck were those things you know, called? The, 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 the IR luminaires. They're like, they're like this one. Yeah. that big around for calling, for calling in J-Dams. Islids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, those things are <laughs> – you guys are you guys are roped to dick fucking <laughs> – Yeah, we're like lightsabering up in the sky with our MVGs, like, to see it, you know. <laughs> then we ended up going going inland – and setting up shop in like a, a, a heroin factory that the A10s had pretty much fucking put made Swiss cheese. Uh, call and that get got officially turned into Camp Rhino. Hmm. So then we were in Camp Rhino. We were in Afghanistan probably in November, I think. Didn't didn't maybe late October. Rhino become Leatherneck. I don't know. Am, am I correct on that? No. I, I, I'm not sure. When I talk I to other veterans, it's kind of hard for me because they're like, when they talk about Afghanistan, they're like, oh, were you at this place and this place and this place? I'm like, none of those places existed, buddy, when I was there. Yeah, I thought, I it's think, kind of the same I'm with Iraq. pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Camp Rhino became Leatherneck eventually. I don't think, I don't think so because Rhino was pretty fucking west and, excuse me, Leatherneck is in the Helmand province in the desert section of the Helmand, which is out west. I don't. I don't think okay. so at all. Which okay. Was the, okay. Hellman was the main main heroin. It was like a, it was in the middle of fucking nowhere, and it was like a there was a wall around the compound, and then buildings inside of that, and it was all painted yeah, white. I remember it was just fucking holes everywhere. Swiss cheese. Yeah, I remember references to that. I remember some other guys talking about it one time, and I, I don't know for some reason I thought that Rhino had be eventually become red, Leatherneck, but okay. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I really could be wrong. So it'd be cool if it was. And so, then we would just we would just go out into the desert looking for shit, looking for cache sites, um, watching um, for travel patterns. Uh, it was just me and a six-man team out there snooping and pooping, just fucking feeding intel to Mattis, because that's who we worked for. You know, Mattis would give us commander's intent, and we would fucking run with it. So that's pretty much where I stayed the, most of the time. I know Brad and his team, they ended up going up to Kandahar um, to clear out Kandahar for the Kandahar, to ultimately secure the Kandahar airport. That was that whole thing. I'm not, I'm going to speak very carefully here because I might piss off a lot of people. About it. They were running, essentially they were, so recon Marines were on one hillside and SF was on the other with Eastern Alliance. And they were calling in Jane Dams, taking turns on stuff fleeing Kandahar that had munitions in it. And 
somehow a JDAM came directly down on the SF group with Eastern Alliance. Now, some people say that the SF guys gave them the, their own 10 digit grid for the JDAM. Others say that they punched it in wrong on the bird and that's what landed. I don't, I don't know that story. That's the part where I don't want to piss anybody off because I don't know. Goddamn. But that's where they, that's where the JDAM came in on top of SF and the Eastern Alliance there. That was Brad's team. Did it, did it kill any SF guys? It did, I don't right? think it did, but it fucked no? up a bunch of Eastern Alliance guys. Hmm. Because then they started medevacking them into Camp Rhino. I came in like we were out in the field. So we came in, I think, the day after or so. And there were kids with like missing fucking legs and shit with the Eastern Alliance, right. like 13 year old kids. Oh. Uh, I know the, S- the SEALs married up with some folks that were out doing essentially hunting fucking Al Qaeda and sawing their heads off in the back of trucks and shit. It was the Wild West. It really was. Like I had a beard there. I grew a beard. We were all wearing beanies and. <laughs> You know, sunglasses with beards running around, just snooping and pooping, finding what we could find. Like That's we crazy. Do. That's super cool that you were, I mean, on the ground, like at the very beginning. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you wrap that bitch up, man. You get back to the States. You know, there's kind of a hiatus. Yeah, at that between- point, first recon turned into a battalion in the time when we were gone. So come back, we're with... Now we're with with Bravo Company 2nd Platoon is what it turned into. A lot of the guys bounced because they already did extensions to do the to do the float anyways. So Brad, myself, were in that in that group. That's when Fick came over. So Fick Fick was with an infantry unit there in Afghanistan with us on float. And Fick and and uh, Eric Dill had buddied up. And he's the one that convinced Fick to come over to re- to try out to do the recon stuff. So I so Fick took over that platoon ultimate at the end, and so I was in. That's how I was in Fick's platoon initially. Was Gunny Wynn already there? I think he had just shown up, like when Fick did. And this was know? like O two, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably O two. Yeah, it was. This was. Yes. This was the late fall, early summer of O two. Right. Got it. And then it so was schools. It was it was let's go to schools. A bunch of guys ended up going to first force. They either got out, went to first force, or the newer guys, we all stayed at first first battalion. So that's right when you and I cross paths. I get to first recon battalion for pre BRC in August of two thousand two. Right, like weeks okay. after my fucking deployment with the Grants with the thirty first meal. I think I remember you. Were, were you with the Rip Platoon then? Yep. Yep. So we had Mathiason. You were okay. So it was uh, Big T. I remember was, Big T part of a Rip group. We were running like a one of those. So at that time too, they were trying to fatten out recon. Right, they were trying to turn it from a company to a battalion, and Fernando had taken over. And he was essentially in charge of creating a recon factory. And so that's when things got a lot more regimented at recon. It became more of a, it became less of a boutique shop and more of a corporate shop, if that makes sense. So you had, you had a lot of outside guys that weren't recon officers. You had normal, at that point, you had a lot of outside officers that were administrative POG officer, grunt officers in a completely Mm -hmm. new realm. 
bringing what they only knew best, which was their previous life to a very first right. name we didn't, bearded out We basis. didn't have S shops initially, right? Then we become a battalion. Now we got S shops, you know, whereas we didn't before. And so there's just more eyes. There's a lot more brass. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. This is from my perspective, but it seemed like with a lot of this new brass, even on the officer, or more especially on the officer level, they almost thought of themselves as reconnaissance Marines or were trying to be recon Marines, if that makes <laughs> sense. Whereas before they kind of knew their role, so to speak, it was the most of them were intelligence officers and they knew that their role was in the rock, getting the raw data or raw Intel from us and then preparing that for hire. Right. You start to get more infantry officers in there, and they're used to being the bosses, right? They're used to being the ones that are, you know, let's attack that hill and, and running forward. But they're still not out in the field with us. You got, we got a lot more of the regular Marine Corps injected into re the reconnaissance community at that point in time. That's when people started caring a little bit more about how your camis looked and whether your boots were polished correctly whether you had haircuts, you or know, your mustache was in red, that kind of stuff started <laughs> getting injected in a little bit, you know, whereas before it was really not any of that. So I go to pre BRC in August, finish Mathiason, you know, Ryan Jeske, Clint Lockoff. Uh, it's when I first came across Rudy. Rudy was my instructor and uh, my sorry, and rich, famous, famous, rich Barrett. The one and only, and uh, I end up going to BRC, basic, basic reconnaissance course, and I graduate in November, and I finally get to my first team at Bravo Company, second platoon. My first team is Larry Sean Patrick, eight, uh, TL, and Rudy Reyes was my ATL, and then that's when you and I finally fucking fist bump, and we're in the same platoon, our, uh, our worlds fucking collide, man, and then shortly after that high five it really wasn't a high five it was you looking down on me because you were a senior guy now <laughs> <laughs> was a dirty like, fucking i was a boot all over again and no one gave a fuck that i was a corporal from the grunts and already had been done two years but uh as as it should be you gotta earn your keep still and uh we get when we're going to fucking iraq man so in your recollection with our, our brain powers combined how did how did the heartbeat of first recon now battalion start to change how did it escalate what, what did you see the change from company to battalion fuck, fuck the, the designation of company battalion but did you start to see the the ramp up for this deployment how, what's your memory like of, of those first few months before we actually hit the deck in iraq I, I'm kind of a take life as it comes it kind of guy. And so it was sort of a, we'll see if it does, we'll see if it doesn't kind of thing. Yeah. I was actually kind of shocked that we ultimately ended up doing it based on the, you know, the scuttlebutt that was going around, you know, I, I was cool with it if it did. And, and I was cool with it if it didn't, I kind of preferred that it did because why the fuck else am I in the Marine Corps? And then when we did, I was like, holy fuck. Awesome. Cool. Let's go. You know, let's go do this. Were there it, it was interesting too because we that all my old platoon there weren't a lot of us left right some of us gone to force and a lot of us had gone, gotten out already and so we were relied on heavily 
to sort of do the whole what's it like sort of thing based on Afghanistan. You know, how'd you guys do this? How did this ultimately play out? How did this work? How did that work? And so we relied, relied on quite a bit. Again, it's at that point in time, I was more tied into the whole Fernando trying to manufacture reconnaissance Marines. Uh, that was my big thing that I was appalled by or, or used most of my cognitive energy towards um, is that, that whole concept. So the whole ramp up to the war, you know, to be honest, it kind of blindsided me a little bit, you know. Hmm. So we get broke down into these these teams. I'm an Inspiris team. I get kind of pushed out of, of Rudy's and, and Larry Sean's team because they had to make another fucking team for a fifth vehicle or fourth vehicle for our platoon. So I get stuck with Aspera, and you're now in Colbert's team. You have Trombley in the vehicle, I believe. <laughs> Who's all in your team? So the whole team formation thing really fucking pissed me off. You and I kind of talked about this before. <laughs> Say that so again. the whole team formation thing, that yeah. really was- fucking pissed me off. And you and I kind of talked about this before. It'll make sense once I start going into it. But going in, once we kind of knew that we were going to be doing this whole Iraq thing, Brad had convinced Nate Fick to let him pick his team, pick the guys he wanted in his team. And his first pick was me as RTO. And for our listeners out there, I'm going to inject, RTO is the radio guy. He's the radio man. Yep. The receiver transmitter operator, right? So I had made a name for myself in being, I'm, I'm very technically capable. I had made a name for myself as the go-to guy for radio. Um, I even did that at ARS, right? Like it, it became such a joke at ARS, like during that hell week or that like field week that we do where nobody can get resupply because they can't get comms, yada, yada. I could always toss up an antenna and we started, I started doing things on the DCT. Do you remember the DCT? So I would do things on the DCT. Like when we would do resupply requests, re- requesting like Copenhagen and sh- like just to be an asshole. Right. Cause I could, I just know, I just have a knack for that. I just know how things work and I'm very good at working them. And so I know crypto fills and how to program radios and all that kind of stuff. Well, Brad knew that because his concept and what he sold to Fick was, I want to build a dream team so that if there is any like super fun go-to side missions, that his team would be the first to be picked. And a core of, of being an effective reconnaissance team is communication, right? That... If you really break down recon marines, that is their weapon, right? It's the radio. It's the ability to communicate and transfer information. Or why else are you out there, right? And so he wanted the best person that everybody knew would always get fucking comms. And so he got me as his RTO. So Fick and Wynn and Brad they all pulled me in the office to break this news to me because they knew I was not going to be fucking happy. You know, I get fucking pissed off and storm out of there. Uh, they ended up making a level of team leader. Great dude. Love right. him to death. But I was really pissed off, number one, because I wasn't even being made an ATL, right? Like, if you could have you had me as an ATL on your team, 
and, and still got perfect comms because ultimately the RTO would do what I fucking told him to do. And I would teach those things to that RTO. He, he was buddy-buddy with Aspera, which is fine. Aspera was an infantry guy, and as a sergeant, there's no fucking way Aspera was going to be under the command of someone who wasn't at least a sergeant. Coming from the yeah. grunts, you know that mindset, right? Aspera through and through was a grunt. That whole team formation thing really fucking pissed me off. And and that's part of like the whole gin kill series and stuff that the the weird dynamic between Colbert and myself, mother, dad, you know, father, mother relationship or the passive aggressiveness to to a point. A lot of it was because of that, right? Is because Brad fucked me. <laughs> yeah. Like I love Brad to death. I do. And always will. I do too. But they but made Brad him. Colbert they, is Brad they, Colbert. they made him so tough in the fucking series, and he's so not in real life. And I love the dude. I truly do. Like he's a fucking yeah, ten pound brain. We, we all called him Big Gay Brad. You know what I mean? <laughs> Wick, wickedly I love fucking Brad smart. To death. Yes. Yeah. That, it's, it's so funny how from Generation Kill, that's now like my staple of like we're fucking psychopaths. Like, right under that fucking edge of, like, going b- ballistic and taking out a fucking bank, right? So, like, we're bonafide <laughs> fucking harnessed fucking energy that could be c- completely go the opposite way. And you get these these actors, no offense, that try to encapsulate how we really are in a short amount of time, which is seven hours. Can't really do that. But they just they, – some of the guys, you know, just, just generation kill – made me look at every single movie afterwards like hmm you know what i'm saying like yeah based on truth i'm like hmm all right so i don't know if you feel the fucking yeah. same way but it kind of warped my perception of hollywood in films and shows jason had an but- interesting story about the whole generation kill and i'm and I mean, if you wanted to go through through all that, the, the stuff with your deployment and all that stuff, I'm sure there's some things that everyone knows that the way it was portrayed on the movie is not going to be even close to exactly what you guys experienced. But Jason had a humorous story about, you know, sort of trying out for his part in the in the story. Did they have play or part in, in potentially your character at all? I keep saying character, but in yourself. Yeah, on the surface, yes. In reality, no. So at the time, I thought, cool. So I got brought in pretty early. At the time, HBO bought the movie rights. They didn't know who was going to do it. So I think the first person they approached to do it was Michael Bay. Yeah. It was going to be shit blowing up and bodies flying everywhere. Yeah, there would have been a lot more explosions. Yeah, if, if, if any movie makes me cringe when they talk on the radio or do anything militaristically, <laughs> it's a fucking Michael Bay movie. It yeah, is literally sure. the fucking the worst. Then it got <laughs> moved to David Simon, who did The Wire. And I got brought in pretty early because they said, hey, these guys are writing, they're fattening the, the script out. Would you be willing to go through some of it and like redline it, right? So take out what they had written and put Marine Corps slang and, and, and make it Marine Corps. Right. Nice. Uh, can you help write some nine lines? Cause they wanted real stuff. 
And what was exciting to me was, you know, David Simon was like, I want a Marine, this from the very beginning, I want a Marine to be able to watch this series and see nothing wrong with it at all. I want everything to be true to the way it's supposed to be. Wow. So I was like, okay, cool. I didn't know it at the time, but he had already picked out my character. I, I learned this later on when talking to David. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink-inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. Is that he read the book... And the very first thing he said, the reason I chose to do this was was because of your character. He said, there are a couple things. First of all, your name, person. He's like, it's like poetry, right? Like sometimes a character's name, I forget exactly how he said it, but it's like this, it's like, why would that name be attached to this character kind of thing? But then he immediately knew based on reading the book, who was going to play me, which was going to be a guy that he had worked with before in The Wire guy named PJ Ransone. So when he took the whole project, he took it because of my character and he already knew PJ Ransone was going to play me in, in the series <laughs> from the very beginning before he wrote anything. At the time, I didn't know that. So I did try out for my own part. You know, I, I sent them a, their, a little snippet or whatever. I wasn't going to do it, but my wife encouraged me to. She's like, you're going to regret this forever if you don't. For sure. And so I said, you know what? You're right. Let me at least try out and say I did. The likelihood of them taking it is probably not high because I knew I already had a lot of speaking lines in it. It probably would have sucked if I played myself, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that, man. It would be be like Rudy Reyes' performance. Yes, sir. (laughs) May I ask a question, please? You know? (laughs) Yeah, true story, man. True story. So if you I actually watched the whole with fucking anticipation thing, anticipation of Rudy watching this and and seeing me say that, <laughs> I'm gonna send this one snippet to him. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been talking to Rudy a lot, man. We, we've gotten close. If you and I talked about, but uh, have you watched the whole fucking thing? Did you watch all seven? I have. I, so I watched them initially. I did a lot. I did. I worked a lot with post production as well. After all the filming and the stuff was done in in in, in Africa. I would fly out to California for a week at a time and literally we would just bring actors in and have them say things. (laughs) So like in the series, there's no music in the series. And so if you really listen, the funny part to me is not the words, the main dialogue. It's all the background chatter you hear throughout the whole series. Literally, we would just sit in a couch. It was like myself, David Simon, and then Evan Wright for some of it as well. And we would just think up things to make these actors say, and then they would just say them. And they, you guys were using that as background, ba- background vocals or whatever for for sound. Yeah, just background That's chatter. That's fucking hilarious. Yep. So, so my face is never yeah. in Generation Kill, but my voice is quite a bit. Actually, like, uh, one, of my favorite, my, one of my favorite lines is we're talking about Rudy, and and my voice is in it, and it's me talking about how Mexicans steal all your shit and stuff like that, which is hilarious to me because my wife's Mexican. But it was mainly because of Rudy, because fucking Rudy. Oh, my God. Some of the stories. Lots of them, man. Okay, so, so you know what? You brought it up. So give us a Rudy story right now. 
probably my favorite one. We all go out new workout time because Rudy and I were in, in second platoon together. We all go out to the range and Larry Sean Patrick can't find his flak jacket. Rudy shows up with a flak jacket. Right? He's a brown bagger, right? He lives out in town. He shows up with a flak jacket. It has the word, the name Patrick written on the chest with the black <laughs> magic marker line through it. And it says Reyes underneath it in black magic Shut marker. Shut the fuck up. Yes. And we're like, God damn it, Rudy. You fucking took Larry Sean's, you know, it's the whole thing in the Marine Corps. Nobody's stealing anything. They're just taking their own stuff back. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's He's fucking like, funny. Brother, no, it's mine. We're like, motherfucker. It's Sean's. It has his goddamn name on it. You literally put, just drew a, a line through it. So I love the fact though, that you're like, you're like brother, brother. Cause every time Jason, does the Rudy voice? He's like, "Hey, brother!" <laughs> every yeah, single yeah. time. Hey, brother! It's just the first two words of every. Hey, sentence. brother! That's come on, man! Come on, hey, brother! Hey, brother! <laughs> and my first Rudy, was, oh my. he was literally a Mexican, right? Not even U.S. citizen. And you would open like a drawer in his barracks room, and it would be filled with fucking pens. He would steal them. He would like borrow your pen to do something and then stick it in his pocket. And it was all the stolen pens he fucking had. I was kind of a klepto with fucking stealing pens myself, man. I don't know what it was. It's weird, dude. I had a whole drawer at my last job fucking stuffed with him. So we go through that fucking deployment, dude. You know, it's pretty documented and some of it was kind of spot on. When do you actually get out of the Marine Corps? Uh, I got out at the end of 2003. November 2nd of 2003. Pretty pretty soon after we got back. Yeah. Yeah. Un- it it, it kind of sucked, too, because I had gotten out shortly after you guys were going back. I think it was that January yeah. when you guys yeah, did looks- the um, – I got drunk one night, and I had called Mike Wynn up, and I was like, I'm reenlisting. I got to go back. You guys can't go back without me, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, fucking go to bed, you know? What kind of prompted the decision that you were getting out? I, I knew I was getting out before I ever even joined the Marine Corps, right? The Marine Corps to me wasn't a career. It was right. it was for me to find myself. And I and I and it was the sweet release of getting out. Like I knew, okay, I've learned the ropes here, I've done my thing, I'm ready to go take what I now know and who I now am and go attack the world with it. So that being said, I did re- think about re enlisting for a hot second. And it was solely due to, at the time, they stood up debt one down in Coronado. They were standing up debt one, and it was the whole, you guys can come down here and have all the toys and shooting packages and yada yada. So I did think about reenlisting for that. I went ahead and bounced. It's probably a good that I did. Things were pretty nasty for me after we got back from Iraq. I had stayed in Iraq a little bit longer. So I didn't get back. The day I got back from Iraq was July 4th, 2003. Um, I volunteered to stay there to, with the gear to, to get it all back, primarily to spend more time in country to get that tax-free money, that sweet, sweet tax-free money. I knew I was getting out anyways. So by the time I had gotten back, it's right when the Rolling Stones articles came out. I was not welcome back. I'll say that. For some reason, I think I kind of became the scapegoat for the whole Jen Kill thing. And people saw that the whole thing is a negative, at least the the articles. They saw it as a negative, and I was the 
focus of their attention. Like I tried to get extended leave to do, to go find housing, you know, out, which per regulation was there for me, but it was denied. What, why did everybody so have such if, a fucking heartache about it? Oh, probably. The, I'm not the so sure. Probably the embarrassment of the fucking, some of the upper echelon, you know, captivated yeah. through the mouthpiece of fucking Ray and, you know, fuck it, dude. That's just the way it was. So, so I be, it, it became as if it was all my voice and coming from me. I, I don't have any animosity to the guy at all. And honestly, I probably would have been as loud as advocate as far as this isn't really how it went. But Griego had a fucking hard on for me. He was the one that denied all my, all my, uh, the two week leave to go find housing and all that kind of stuff. And I could just tell most of the guys were gone at the time. He was there and, and his welcome was not kind, Jesus Christ. which is interesting because if he thinks that the story was negative or not true about him, what makes him think that it was not negative or not true about me and everyone else that was, that was a character. Correct. And, and I would have been, honestly, I would have been one of his big, biggest advocates in vouching for what he was trying to say about himself i i don't think he got colored well in the series nor in the book but at that point in time i was already i was i was the boogeyman for him and, and for a lot of folks and then two there was and, and people had even said it there were new guys coming into first recon and they were primarily all infantry guys the the whole um intel guys were kind of getting pushed out and they were bringing infantry guys in like officers and and higher ups and they literally said we're here to fix recon you fucking cowboys this is not your cowboy land anymore we're here to fix you we're here to make you like the rest of the marine corps and so i was like you know what i'm out of this uh, because i'm not ever going to not be the scapegoat brad even had to go meet with general mattis because he was selected for staff sergeant and talked to Mattis about it because they were going to deny him if he didn't. Wow. He had to have a conversation with General Mattis about Generation Kill or the Rolling Stones articles at the time before they let him pick up staff sergeant. That's, that's a big deal. It's a really yes. big deal. It's a real fucking big deal. Get out, you EAS. What are your thoughts post-Marine Corps about what you're going to do? And if I did, I would have had to go somewhere else, you know, like counter intel or something like that. So you get out, and I know bits and pieces man uh of your life after that so you know what's uh walk us through the the civilian side of fucking mr person man mm. unicorns and rainbows my friend no that was that that was the best rank jump i ever got is getting promoted to mr no so i got out i moved to kansas city primarily because of my wife now i was gonna move to like thailand or fucking join the french foreign legion or do something else crazy but i wanted my wife to be my wife so oh did, did we just lose him we did we did hold on to that yeah uh, he's back oh he's back so I wanted my wife to be my wife. So I moved back to Kansas City and started going to school. So I worked at a 24-hour fitness, checking people in. I worked the front desk, like, boop, here's your towel. Have a good workout kind of thing. Got a free gym membership out of it. And uh, one day I was in there working out, and I was wearing my SEER shirt, you know, the SEER school shirt. And there was a guy there and he, he tried to life me out. He's like, where the fuck did you get that shirt? And I was like, it's a school. Hey, you can you hear me? Yeah, we got you, Patrick. Yep, I can hear you. We're good. It's still recording. So this dude's trying to and, life you the fuck out, huh? 
so he's trying to like me out for wearing a seer shirt because not not a whole hell of a lot of people have those you know and so so we get to talking and he's like he finds out what i did and he's like why the fuck are you working here and i was like "Eh, free gym membership you know low stress so then he's like why don't you come over and work for this and it was doing domestic ep work or executive protection work you know wearing the suit and tie with the gun so i gave them my resume and and immediately got hired and and started doing ep work uh while going to school did ep work for a company called clarence kelly and associates they did he was the second director of the fbi right after j edgar hoover and it was mainly just like babysitting um executives you know corporate executives that would go on trips you know, just mainly doing a lot of like route reconnaissance, site site surveys, things like that. A fun story I know you wanted to get to it at one point is it was during Hurricane Katrina. We had a contract with different children's hospitals. The children's hospital in New Orleans was in the middle of New Orleans. And so when Katrina hit, we immediately headed down there to lock that site down. So we get into Katrina at like 2 a.m., it's still dark, like it's right after it happened. Uh, we get on site, and I didn't sleep for 24 hours. Um, it was, they had set up a helo zone out back behind the hospital. And so they had these, you know, big ass generators and lights to set up the helo zone to medevac all the kids out and stuff. There was, so there was a big, like, industrial generator there, um, like a tow behind, and a whole bunch of, like, lights, like, you know, poles with lights on, like, movable. And they had rigged yep. this up to light up the LZ. And so what we did is broke into one of their trucks, hotwired it, hooked the generator to it and drug it around to a, to a different spot. And then took all those lights and strung them up around the hospital. So instead of the, around the LZ, we strung them up around the hospital. So I'm like there with a pair of Leatherman, like wiring all these lights in. Uh, we get the lights up and mainly just sit on that hospital for for a month um it was fucking cowboy land um the inside of the hospital was absolutely disgusting they like when the hurricane had come in people started shitting in the toilets even though they weren't working anymore and it completely filled the toilets up with shit and it was so disgusting in there that then they duct taped the door to the toilet to the bathrooms so they they just sealed the door and fucking duct taped it um there was a huge, later. <laughs> yeah there was yeah. a there was a Somebody else's huge problem. fish tank in the lobby so then there's and then they had an oxygen bottle with a, a hose stuck in it so they had pulled one of the oxygen bottles and had a hose stuck in it <laughs> slowly bubbling to keep these fish alive right well these fish were not doing well and some of them were big big ass fish it was a big ass a tank so then you got dead fish that they had pulled out that was stinking up the fucking place there were still some (laughs) alive fish so what i did is i went out front to the like little circle drive and pulled out really um uh just some shrubs and just stuck those in the tank and those actually kept the fish alive which is kind of cool uh we we actually got a letter at the end of it thanking us for keeping the fish alive uh as part of the (laughs) part of the letter they were really worried about those fish christ but it was it, it was eerie because it's an empty hospital. There's no heat or electricity or air conditioning. It's hot and sticky and muggy. 
and here we are camped out in it. You know, I'm running, we're running ARs, drop holsters, you know, just protecting the hospital. You know, you had a lot of people that were trying to scavenge at that point in time. Like I said, it was the Wild West. So people were going in and just fucking cleaning places out like businesses. The big thing that we were fighting is a lot of drug seekers. People would show up all strung out, um, pretending they work for the hospital saying, you know, you know, I work at the pharmacy. I need to get in there. And we're like, oh, <laughs> you know, the pharmacy on the second floor. And they're like, yeah. And we're like, yeah, there is no pharmacy on the second floor, asshole. Get out of here. You know, they had uh, at one point a fun story is so there were these guys that I don't know if they were or not, but they were claiming to be St. Bernard Parish sheriffs or deputies. Right. They had the badges and everything. They had shotguns, you know, and we're all on ARs and they come up to liaison with us, which is kind of weird. And we, we quickly figured out that they were kind of scoping us out a little bit. At one point, we, we when we kind of realized this, we started to shoo them away and they went to go steal one of the, um, the trucks that the hospital trucks. And so we ended up chasing them. You know, so we're chasing them down the road on foot with our ARs. They're running towards the Mississippi River, which isn't far away. All of a sudden, this uh, New Orleans PD car pulls up. We're yelling at him what's going on as he's driving beside us. He gets out. He's in full uniform with an MP5. He starts chasing these guys with us. And the guys, we made it to the Mississippi. They had jumped in a Coast Guard cutter that they had stolen and then z- were zipping down the Mississippi at that point. Holy fuck. But then afterwards, this he was like a captain, right, with New Orleans Police Department, with his MP5, right? He's trying to clear it. And he's, like, holding it like this, like, fiddle-fucking with it. Oh. And he flags me. And I'm like, ugh. So I step. Right out of where his muzzle is pointing, and then he does it again and turns, and I step out of where he's, and he goes, he goes, oh, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not gonna shoot you, and I'm like, if you fucking point that at me again, I'm gonna assume you're trying to shoot me. Uh, but he finally gets the fucking thing cleared. I knew I was gonna get zipped with, with an MP5. <laughs> so many. Oh my then God. We, we we would do side missions, right? It was really almost like a video game. So while we were down there, so they had the whole place cordoned off. So nobody could get in or out, but we were already in. So because we were already in, we would get tasked with doing like little side missions, like legal offices or banks or whatever would hire us. Who, to who go. Is, people are contacting your company and they're asking for this assistance and their company is Correct. tasking you guys with these messages. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Correct. What was the company Correct. again? Clarence Kelly and Associates. So he never, was the, he was the second them. director of the FBI right after J. Edgar Hoover. And he had a, a, like more of a locally run private investigations EP firm out of Gotcha. Because he was the okay. chief of police in Kansas City in the 60s. And so that's when he came back home. And, well, he and the other the other guy that started with him, a guy named Tom Dupreece, super awesome dude, used to be with the FBI as well, was still with the company, great little company uh, to work nice. with and work for. So we would do these little side missions where we would go into these like flooded out law offices and get shit out of their vault for them or out of their safes. A, another really cool, weird thing. So a few days after we get there, we had set up shop. The team that was down there, the core of us, there were four of us that were former former uh, Marine Corps guys. Three of us with infantry and one, I guess, that wasn't. So the National Guard shows up, and they decide that they're going to set up shop 
behind the hospital in this field that was previously used to as a as an LZ. So they set up shop there. We liaison with them because they're right there. The commanding officer there comes to us and says, hey, we have to start doing patrols, but none of my officers really know how to patrol, right? We're not an infantry unit. Um, would you guys <laughs> mind? And so we did a down and dirty like class for all these National Guard officers to teach them patrol tactics for them to start going out and patrolling the streets of New Orleans. So that was kind of fun. Uh, we got access to That's, their mess hall because of it. Um, nice. So we had trip. full access to their mess hall. So it's hilarious because you've got this National Guard unit, you know, and then you've got us. I'm wearing like a black polo shirt with cami pants, drop holster, AR, beard, you know, not giving a fuck. And, and you know, they're all in their normal camis. They thought they probably thought we were fucking special forces something Chuck norris yeah. whatever <laughs> no. that's a trip um, <laughs> oh my god the question we all have is did you stack bodies did you did you stack any bodies not in new orleans no the only <laughs> the only body parts in new orleans were there were some body parts still left in the deep freeze uh, but I didn't have to clean those out they brought a special cleaner team that had to go do that thank you yeah we uh, jason and, and i had amputations oh Jason yeah. and I have heard through the grapevine from from various folks that there was uh I know Blackwater was there. That's why I specifically asked about that. We had heard that these guys were putting people down, looters and that type of thing. Did you have any visibility on that? Uh we didn't really have that where we are. We had a pretty hard posture. Um and so we nobody really fucked with us. Um so we really never had to run into anything like that. Um, there were a ton of stories, you know, like the, the, there was a whole ring of cops that were going and like looting jewelry stores and shit. And they had taken over a whole level of, of one of these hotels, right? Like the second or third floor or something like that. And what they were doing is they were going out in the day and instead of doing what cops should be doing, they were stealing shit and bringing it all back to this hotel. And that's where they were cashing everything. So it was a cache Holy of nothing shit. but like Rolexes and jewelry and all this kind of shit. Turns. I did have, that's where I had my first muffalata. So one of the very first places to open back up after Katrina was City Market. I guess it's known for their, I had never had a muffalata at that point in my life. I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. I don't know about. what language you're speaking right now, dude. What is that? <laughs> it's yeah. a... It's a ham, it's essentially a ham sandwich is about this big around. It's like on a special bread they do. And then it's a ham sandwich, but it's got like a um, layer of like an olive spread. It is fucking to die for. That and, sounds and pretty good. Maybe I'm tainted because it was the greatest thing I'd ever eaten at that point in my life. You know, it's sort of the after you've eaten MREs for nine months straight, that first meal tastes like gold, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, it tasted amazing. At night, there were tons of gunfire at night. Um, a lot of the rival gangs in New Orleans were battling for turf. They saw this as an opportunity to gain gain turf. And so at nights, it was, it was always gun battles going off at night. Um, of these gangs fighting over turf. Yeah. So where, where in... It was the Wild West. Uh, I've... I've been out there before uh, on a few occasions. So where I, I don't know where this hospital is. Where is this in relation to sort of the center of downtown and the the heavier urban areas? It was a couple miles away from it. Okay, yeah, it wasn't very far at all. We were right next to the okay. Mississippi River. 
Okay. And how long were you Again, out there total? It, it's one of those, it's, it's, uh, I was out there a month before we did wow. the handover. At that point, they were starting to get people in, electricians working on the, the poles and things were kind of getting back to normal, you know, uh, about, about a month after. Very, very so familiar about balance. that, that timeline having gone through, uh, Hurricane Ian out here in Fort Myers, man. So it's definitely not an immediate thing. So, so once you got done with all that and you, you, how, how long were you doing the sort of the, the side work with EP, uh, like contracting gig? How long did you do that for? I, I did that for a few years. Then I did the HBO stuff with them for Gen Kill. And then I started running, uh, doing like retro, retro graphic services. Like I did operation stuff for them, essentially doing like uh, blueprints and things like that, like document mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I saw that as hugely inefficient and wasteful. And so I started a company <laughs> called uh, Blue Point or Blue Note that did uh, construction document management, right? So there's luckily Kansas City has like one of the highest per capita engineering firms in America. And so there's huge companies. There's like Black and Beach and Burns and McDonald and um, huge uh, construction companies like JE Dunn, um, Kiwit you know, those types of things. And so I started meeting with a lot of them, uh, you know, learning more about like these whole Six Sigma projects on like document management and revision history and all that. And so I said, instead of doing this print wise and dealing with that, let's digitize everything. And this was 2007, 2008 timeframe. And so I got some traction with that, started working with um, one of the inventors of uh, a concept called BIM, which is where you build a, you build a building as a 3d model and everything kind of falls into place and you can produce 2d graphic or plans off of that for, for the building to kind of integrate with some of that stuff. And uh, yeah, that was fun times. I sold that and then got a call from, a gentleman named uh, Todd Dupriest, which is the son of the FBI agent that started Clarence Kelly and Associates. The Clarence and Kelly and Associates company had a, had a smaller company called SureTech. SureTech originally started in 1983 as a kind of an R&D branch of Clarence and Kelly and Associates. And what it was there for is to develop tools for their investigators to use. And so they developed things like microwave video transmission for doing, you know, um, surveillance platforms, things like that. It was kind of a zombie company at that point. It hadn't really been making any money. Todd called me and said, hey, I've got this idea for uh, replacing a certain tool in that space with a smartphone doing audio and GPS transmission. And at the time, you know, this is 2008, 2009 timeframe. Um, Android wasn't really a thing, you know, iPhones had just come out really any kind of smartphone when we're talking about it, this, these, that, that point in time was a windows mobile phone or a Blackberry. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yep. we started developing a tool, um, based on the windows mobile system for doing undercover operation work. So I said, sure, you know, let's do it. And so I came over to SureTech, and and that's where I've been since. Um, nice. So it, what for is, years it was a for years it was a hardware company. We transitioned it into a, we're purely software now. You guys 
develop your develop your own software specifically yeah we develop we so the clarence kelly and associates side that whole side of the company was sold a few years ago so SureTech is a standalone thing you know we built it up and and it's been very successful um we've been doing software exclusively and we do it exclusively for government agencies so we we build tools for government agencies intelligence collection or intelligence gathering systems got it did you have a you know, brick and mortar AO, or is it, is it remote? Is it, uh, we do, we have our, our headquarters is in, is in Kansas city area. Um, and then we have a remote office down in Austin, Texas. How many employees you guys got? Uh, I want to say 12. Nice. Right so, now. so it's small. small. That's, that's, that's small. That's good. Small manageable part, part of it too. Part of it too, though, is we outsource our HR. So we, you, we don't have that head count. Right. So that would be another two, three people. We also build a lot of internal tools. So when it comes to automation, we do a shit ton of it. You know, we have an, an internal AI called named Mr. Cuddles and Mr. Cuddles <laughs> handles. I named it, you know, it's a little cat emoji. That's how it shows up. in like in all our records is Mr. Cuddles did this or did that. Uh, but Mr. handles the vast majority of everything. And then we just focus on, you know, the things that AI can't handle. Very interesting. You know, I got a, a question couple, for you. We have a couple core products that we, we have, and then we also do boutique work as well. What do you think about, what do you think, what do you think about that, that software and, and where it's going and what the potential uses are for that? I think 90, I think 90% of how people think about it is hype, right? It's actual utility. I think it has a much narrower scope than people assume. Does it have utility? Yes, obviously. You know, for me, the power of AI isn't necessarily in the language modeling side, which is more of the chat GPT, that kind of stuff. For me, it's more in the pattern recognition. And then um, obviously we deal a lot with like things like video and audio. So it's object detection, things like that. Right. So like, for instance, let's say I'm doing surveillance on something. I can sit there and and have somebody watch a video feed 24-7 or scrub through a, a week's long worth of 24-7 video. Or instead, I can train an AI model to detect certain things, and then I can have it key in on those things for me and alert me. So I'm not having to watch it, Right. A computer is much more resilient than a human being. Human beings get tired, we fall asleep, we missed up, we blink. Uh, a computer doesn't do those things, right? So if, let's say, for instance, I've got a video feed and I want to know any time a banana shows up on screen, I can very quickly, within 10, 20 minutes, I can train an AI model to detect a banana. And then I put that model on that video feed and anytime it detects a banana, it will alert me. And then I, as a human can go in and verify uh, mm -hmm. or deny that. Right. So just so time management. Of, it's just it is. So that's, that's really where for me, the value comes in is the force multiplier that it, that it provides um, outside of the language model stuff. You know, if, if I want to have somebody, craft an email for me or something like that. Sh sure. Chat GPT is very good at that. If I want it to give me sort of fact based things that that's, I would definitely would not use it for that. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's essentially a bullshit machine, 
right, to a degree, mm-hmm. which is perfect for emails, but not good yep. when you're trying to write a factual history report, for instance. To, to, to me, AI, the more powerful components of AI are, are pattern recognition and object detection, right? Things, things more in the boring side, right? You can't, it's, I think a lot of the reason chat GPT three and now four and the, and, you know, Bing system and Bart or whatever the hell Google's called calling theirs. The reason it's caught on so much in mainstream media is because anybody can sit down, open a browser window and ask it a question and get some response. And it seems magical. Whereas with object detection, you can play with it, but it doesn't, it's not as approachable. Right, because it has mm-hmm. a very specific utility that most people don't don't have it is don't have that need. You know, kind of wrapping this thing up. You know, Josh and I, our twenty year anniversary of Iraq is 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 this year. So the Jeez. entire series, Generation Kill, and our platoon and us guys are, you know, we're you know twenty years ago we were already in Iraq right now. So um, for our listeners out there, we have a first recon reunion that Josh and I are uh, teamed up with a nonprofit and uh, we're putting together a reunion from first recon battalion, kind of from that time frame of 2004 OAF one and two. And uh, I've missed the last couple, uh, couple meetings that we're, we're moving forward and we've got a group of guys coming together this May in Montana. And for most of us, you know, we haven't seen each other's faces in a long time. So, <laughs> uh, Josh and I will be behind the scenes trying to put this together along with the help of this nonprofit. So I know I'm pretty excited to be, to be there. I know you are too, Josh. So crazy. It's been 20 years, huh? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it, it, it'll be funny because we'll, we'll all revert back to young 20 somethings being <laughs> idiots. You, you, don't you can't mean? help it. You can't help it. Yeah. You know, s- some guys never let go, right? That is who they are. And they, you know, yeah. But for a lot of us, I mean, we've forgotten all about it. Almost, I mean, we've moved on. We're dads, and right. we're running businesses, and uh, you know, just trying to stay ahead in this world. So, but you know, it's a significant chapter in our lives. But it wasn't the apex, you know, and you can't let it be the apex because that's I think that's a sad way to to have it, right? Because you, you look at the time, the age that we were at that time was considerably younger. You know, and twenty years younger. So, and uh, I would yeah, hate for I, I jokingly tell you know tell my kids when they don't like to do stuff or whatever, and I'm like, I overthrew two governments by the time I was twenty one. You know, you need to get with it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, man, <laughs> absolutely. I think the uh, the boyish brotherhood is going to come out as it should. Uh, yeah, it's going to be good to catch up. And see what's what's happened in the last twenty years for some of these dudes I haven't seen and talked to in that long. So that's yeah, that's gonna be pretty pretty amazing to hear some of the stories after that. To just the the craziness that goes on. Yeah. Happens so. in Montana, stays in Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the good thing about it is, you know, the, this this is happening solely due to donations, right? And you know, a lot of the significant others and wives and whatnot aren't allowed to come to this for good reason. You know, this is for us, the bros, to get together. And some guys are a little buttered about that, but I don't really give a fuck. You know, this is <laughs> this is hard-earned money put in for us to get back together again. And it's needed for us as individuals to collectively get back together and, you know, 
I don't want to say shut it. Yeah, shut let's the give them a. Stuff. You want to give it? We can give them a plug. It's the Warrior Reunion Foundation, and it's run by veterans that were in at the same time we were there. He was a grunt, uh, you know, right. and they reached out to me and said, "Hey, I know you guys are kind of coming up on your twenty years here. What do you, what do you think?" So I just sent out a group text to the the ones that I know, and and everybody was nodding their head the same way. So. Uh, you know, we, we kind of went from there. It's been hurting kittens to a degree. Um, I think most guys understand and appreciate that wives aren't allowed. I know some of the wives are kind of sad to not go because they hear all the, they've heard all these stories for years and they kind of want to put fa- names, you know, faces to names and kind of thing. Um, you know, and they're as more of their part of their husbands and significant others lives, even than we are now at this point. Uh, and they want to experience that with them. So I understand that to a, to a degree, but also there's still a lot of guys that, you know, haven't let go and need to kind of work maybe some shit out. Um, and this is more for them for that too. I mean, it's, it's still going to be fun and jovial and, uh, for everybody. But, um, you know, if anybody does have anything left over, um, this is a good chance for them to kind of, kind of get that out. So. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, talking to other guys too, and their wives pulling me aside from other things that I've done is these guys, us, you know, get together, you know, and then they, I don't know, it's kind of like a refill to the cup, refill to the battery to some degree, and then they go back to their normal lives again, a little bit more rejuvenated and, uh, you know, just kind of re energized. So, you know, running that the previous nonprofit I did for a couple of years, we got to see it, and it's, some of those trips that we did were reunions too. And it's pretty cool to be a part of that, to be a fly on the wall and to see those, you know, rekindled spirits again. So yeah, I'm excited about it for sure. So, well, I think that's a good point to wrap up. I, Josh, I, this has been awesome. Like, man, I, I really appreciate your time and straight up. Yeah. Yeah. No brother. problem. It's good seeing your face again, man. We'll, we'll be talking again, trying to get this reunion going. All right, Josh, thanks for coming on board, brother. All right, thanks, gents. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.